Welcome to the spiritguides.co.uk network radio. This week's guest is Nigel Kerner, screenwriter, journalist and author of The Song of the Greys and Grey Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls. He's joined today with Dr Andrew Silverman who will be discussing later on in the show The Shroud of Turin. The Shroud of Turin is a centuries old linen cloth that bears the image of a man that appears to be Jesus. Um, Dr Silverman touches upon new research that could indicate the cloth is actually genuine. Um, he's also joined with Professor John Biggerstaff, um, Associate Research Professor of Cell Biology. Anyway, just to read the synopsis from the back of the book, it, it kind of sums up pretty well what the talk is all about. Um, in 1997, Nigel Kerner first introduced the notion of aliens known as the greys coming to earth explaining that greys are sophisticated biological robots created by an extraterrestrial civilization they have long since outlived in this new book kerner reveals that the greys are seeking to master death by obtaining something humans possess that they do not souls through the manipulation of human DNA, these aliens hope to create their own souls and thereby escape the entropic grip of the material universe in favour of the timeless realm of spirit. Kerner explains that genetic manipulation by the greys has occurred since biblical times and has led to numerous negative qualities that plague humanity, such as violence, greed, maliciousness, racism he contends was developed by the aliens to prevent their genetic experiments from being compromised by breeding with others outside their influence examining historical records kerner shows that jesus who represented an uncorrupted genetic line warned his disciples about the threat posed by these alien interlopers while hitler a pure product of this alien intelligence waged genocide in an attempt to rid earth of all those untouched by the genetic tampering Despite the powerful grip the greys have on humanity, Kerner says that all hope is not lost. Greys exist wholly in the material world, so if we follow the spiritual laws of reincarnation and karma, aiming for enlightenment, we can free ourselves from their grasp. To say a very warm welcome to Spirit Guides Radio. Um, we are very open-minded radio. I know we've got the spirit in the title, but really it's more about a greater consciousness. Um, nothing whatsoever to do with religion or anything like that. It's about really opening the mind to the greater reality. Really, um, yes. you know, you guys have come to me with uh, your theory on what the grey aliens have been up to. I just would like really for you just to give me a bit of background around the new book that you've written. Yeah, yeah. I'll do that, yes. Well, as I say, it all started quite innocuously at a cricket match one day. Uh, my great love <laughs> in sport is, is cricket, and I was watching a cricket match, and my little boy came up to me, he was 12 at the time, and he asked me, Dad, are UFOs real? And my first instinct was to tell him, it's a load of Mickey Mouse nonsense that he ought not to believe it. Now, he's a pretty well-hitched up fellow up top, uh, with mathematics and all that kind of stuff, and I knew that a frivolous answer would come back to me one day and hit me on the head because he'd do the research and come and say you're, 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 you're stupid you know this is all rubbish you, what you said is rubbish look at this. You know, this so I decided to actually do the research into this before I gave him an answer and that answer took 37 years <laughs> because the more I looked into this and, and you know I have a background on scientific methodologies and so on when I decided to look at it cast away all my prejudices whatever I had try my best a very difficult thing to do by the way and looked at this as straight as I possibly could and I discovered an incredible 
situation uh, was presenting itself, uh, that this business of UFOs and all of that, not only is something out there, it is also something that and up there, so to speak, like, you know, the, the old comics and stuff we were all brought up with and so on, it actually is something deeply powerful, deeply profound, and connects up with the thing we all don't like to believe these days through what science has brought us. It connects up very powerfully with religion. Now, I am not a religious person, full stop. However, I came to to see, and I think my colleagues too were not religious, uh, Dr. Silverman is Jewish, and um, I believe uh, um, uh, John Biggestaff at one time had a, a, a very a strong um, uh, affinity with the Baha'i faith, he's, he's English, but he was, he was, you know, interested in uh, more um, the esoteric side of things in, in terms of, um, you know, um, that direction, and I was, uh, somebody threw some water on me when I was a, a baby and called me a Catholic. So, you see, we've got, <laughs> we have all this kind of stuff, and then we grew up a little bit and decided that this is all, <laughs> this is all folly, believing in the kinds of, you know, superstitions that, that came through, and looked to things much more openly. However, in looking and doing the research into UFOs, so you wouldn't think there was a connection, would you really, Ian, with, with this business? Off the top of your head, you'd think this is absolute nonsense. But I tell you, it connects up extremely strongly to the entire gamut of all belief all through the centuries and millennia. I mean by that, all types of people, be they, you know, um, uh, Stone Age man or whatever, it all comes down to a mechanism uh, that, that, that kind of binds all of us up in a, if you like, a total religion. Now, Andrew wants to come in here for a moment. Yeah, and I was, I was just going to say, I mean, the thing is, the problem is when we say the word religion, people associate it very much with, with organized religion. And this is where um, people like uh, Richard Dawkins start spouting off about, oh, there can't be a God because the religions talk about this um, this vengeful, hating, jealous God, and, and what kind of God would that be? That's something we've made in our own image. Well, in a way, he's got a point that that is what people have done, but that's actually not what the great teachers like the Buddha and, and Jesus were actually referring to at all. This is just what something that man has made afterwards because of various political reasons and so on to to make it easier to control people whereas actually if you look at what they what they said that these teachers they were never actually trying to get people to follow dogma if you, for example buddha said don't believe anything i say for just because i said it test it for yourself and jesus never said he'd come to start a religion he just said he'd come to bear witness to the truth yet people have built these structures around it that really are a, a, a big distortion against what the the original um, people who founded, who, who started talking in those terms were. And I, I think it's, I, I would, I would, obviously I can't, don't claim as, as, um, people like Hawking do to, to know the mind of God, but I would, I would hazard a guess that God isn't religious. Yes. And mm. the point is that we, the whole thing went, um, uh, pear shape when they they tried I think in to make this some organizational function and once you did that you you corrupted the entire ethos of the of what the great uh, minds were saying originally and they would tie in most beautifully with humanism and new age outlooks and all the rest of it and that's what I began to see that this is not really anything to do with a formalized structuralism, if you see what I, uh, I'm saying, that somehow there are these basic tenets 
existential tenets. You are there, I am here. It's better to be here than not here because if you're not, it's nil. That kind of logic. One plus one equals one plus one, not two. And I'm saying that from a mathematician's point of view, if you like. Um, uh, it really is something we try to look at very, very uh, clearly. And uh, whilst uh, uh, Dr. Bickerstaff and Dr. Silverman have collaborated uh, over the years in ideas and so on, and, and kind of we discussed it and passed it through our various disciplines and so forth, to try and come at people and say, now look, science is saying this, religion is saying this, Many, many people are saying other things and so forth. Where does the punter go in the middle of this entire, this field, this morass, if you like, of opinion? Where does the ordinary fellow go to look for some kind of harbor, some kind of, uh, some kind of mind sense that makes uh, uh, him understand why he's there or what we're doing in this place in the first place? What is the universe here for? Whatever, you know. So that goes into all different directions, I think you can see. It builds, a when you connect up the dots, you know, it builds up a consensus that is very, very wide indeed. And we hope that in, uh, I, I wrote the books really as an answer to my son, my son's question. And, of course, when I started writing, I thought it would be quite a, 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 a simple exercise. But as I did the research and I began to find affirmations, uh, to the, uh, with the, for instance, I never believed in UFOs, as I said, in the first place. But when you get people of very high magnitude, uh, observational powers, policemen, um, um, astronauts, whatever, coming and standing testament to the fact that these things actually do exist in real in our reality terms, not specters or ghosts or heebie-jeebies or whatever, we, we, we then have to say, what on earth are these things? They can switch off atomic codes. I don't know if recently you, you listened to the, uh, you've seen the, the, the stuff on this. Um, I have. Carter, I'm sure you have. Yes. And you can imagine now, you know, can you, the, the, real, the real problem is, the political one really, how on earth do they wipe all this stuff off the mainstream so that almost nothing is really said about it by the guys that this thing is going to affect you and I. So who's doing it and who is controlling this so powerfully that most ordinary people can't actually discuss something of such immense consequence, if you see what I'm trying to say. Here are these chaps saying, <laughs> colonels and whatever, trained to observe, that they actually came across something that was out of this kilter of our world, you know, if you see what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So. Well, you explained it in the book about Rendlesham. Absolutely. Those, those yeah. guys are trained to, to know the difference between a lighthouse and yeah. something else. That's right. And, you know, they've come at you from all, come there skeptics of all sorts. You can rent a skeptic. And the problem is that when you take that counterpoint of view, either it's genetically coded in you and against good sense, or you can use a very simple device, neutral logical reason, and then walk that road, if you see what I'm trying to say. And I think I, I try to do that in the books as sincerely and as, 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 as strongly as I possibly could. In fact, you know, it was a real kind of um, um, ethos for me that I had to, to, to kind of grit my teeth and look at. And the more I, I began to do that, the, 
the clearer it became and the more relaxed I got and good heavens you know it's some story to tell it's taken me three books to do it the third one's just finished but the fact is that that's really why the thing is so heavy because there's so much you have to put in you know you, or you leave something out someone will say but what about this and so forth so we try to account for as much as possible with the questions we anticipate that people might ask if you see what I mean sorry about that long spiel but there you go <laughs> well the thing is I mean are your colleagues um, now coming around to the idea that there's other things you know more learned people now dipping their toe in and trying to investigate like you are oh it's got to do that it's, it, it has to do that man uh, andrew andrew wants to say something here well i mean yeah i mean i think there's there's no doubt if you look at the um the wealth of evidence going throughout the centuries and millennia even that that mankind is not alone in the in the universe. I mean, um, the um, even you know cosmologists and um, people biologists have come to this conclusion anyway. And there's plenty of evidence that that this planet has has been visited many times. And and in recent times, there have been times when there have been mass sightings that you know thousands of people have have seen together so i mean there's there's no doubt in my mind that um that that these creatures are are already here yeah and, and the whole point is this there is an awful lot of evidence that I, that's come to my hand before I put it on paper from very reliable s sources really high up in the American and, and um, uh, Soviet um, hierarchy of things, some military and so on, that have confidentially spoken to me, no names of course, but spoken and said that these things are here, they have the, the foolproof evidence of it, physical evidence of it, and they are what, what, what really surprised me to start with, they are in fact robots. They are biological robots. They're not living being in the organic sense, shall we say, that we normally um, have kind of view or, you know, you and I. And so, so well, maybe my, my wife has a difference of view on that, whether I'm actually human or not. But the fact is that, I mean, I, I perceive myself, myself to be human. I'm sure you do too. But in the normal biological sense, we have to take ourselves to be something that is different from a created, um, mechanized, albeit with kind of soft biological, I mean, you can make a transistor now based upon, you know, organic chemistry, if you see what I'm trying to say. Yep. Uh, and uh, you have all kinds of ways now in technology of making robots and so on. We're doing it here on this earth. Can you imagine a civilization that might be 10,000 years ahead of us? And we've done that on 150 years of technology, you know. Mm. I mean, you know, it was only in 1905 that the Wright brothers first managed to get off the ground. And look at, look at us now, if you see what I'm trying to say, how the exponential growth of technology can lead to immense developments and so forth. So I'm sure that out there in some planet in our galaxy, and on many planets in our galaxy, this business is going on. And what I discovered, I believe, is that this is a normal business of the universe. We've just happened on it and begun to understand it. And these things have been here for thousands of years. And in fact, if as you follow the evidence back, that's the thing that, that actually really blew my mind. I'm absolutely convinced that the entire human species was genetically engineered sometime in the past to produce something for a program of an alien entity that we are in fact the lab rats yeah and that of course means i look at my children and i'm sure you have children too <laughs> are you do you i do yes well there you go so that's really the purpose of it i want yep. to be able to look at my children and say now look 
you know, I'm gone, I, I leave you a house or whatever, but, you know, I've left you nothing, <laughs> really, basically, if I can't tell you what your future might be or whatever. So that basically, but not to sound too pious, but that really that is what motivated me as, as, as a dad, if you like, you know, to try and say, this is the way I see the world now. You might find a different story, but take a look at it. And that's why I say with the book, don't be frightened about its weight and all the rest of it. Give it a good go, Ian. See if, see if you can follow the thing through. You might, it might surprise you. I will read it through to the very end. I mean, in the book, you set the stage very well at the beginning of the book, talking about entropy and the way that things break down, you know, using the second law of thermodynamics. And I think it'd be good if you could just sort of set the stage here, really, before you Absolutely. move on to the next part of the conversation. So, so, so the point is this, you, uh, second law of thermodynamics. Uh, would Dr. Silverman like to take this on? Yeah, I mean, from a, um, a, a science point of view, the second law of thermodynamics is basically um, predicated on the idea that the, at the start of the universe, everything came from, from order, that um, the Big Bang, everything was very simple and symmetrical and ordered. And from then, everything has been, been flying apart, becoming more and more complicated and, and broken down. And it's always, it's always one way. Things never get back together again of themselves. You can, if, you, if you watch a, a film going forwards or backwards, you can tell which way it was, which way it was happening. If you see bits of broken glass come up off the floor and gather together into a, into a glass on a table... You know you're watching it backwards, and you know you're watching it backwards because things always happen the reverse way around. It always goes from order into chaos. And what this implies to, um, to the scientists who have studied it in, in more depth is that everything must have come from a perfect, exceedingly unlikely state of order right at the beginning. It's so unlikely that, that if you had um, one with a hundred noughts on the end of it and just... Um, it's so much less than a, a, a needle in a haystack. How precisely ordered everything had to be at the at the start to allow this to happen. Now, if that's the case, if everything is is breaking down from order into chaos, this actually fits well into what Darwin said, but not in the way that people think. Because what Darwin said is that things the fittest to survive will survive and so people think oh yeah well that's how man arose out of the ape which came out of the sea worm which came out of the bacterium and whatever but actually if you actually think about it the reverse is true because as Nigel points out in in his books the fittest thing to continue existing in this universe is not human beings who are just around for a, a few decades things like rocks can be there for hundreds of millions of years how is it that if there were a nuclear holocaust, the things that would survive wouldn't be human beings, they'd be cockroaches? And in fact, you can make quite a good case biologically that this planet is actually dominated not by us, but by, by insects who have the, the most you know, complicated yeah. and advanced adaptive form. So actually, the second law of thermodynamics does point that the, the, the things that will survive physically in, in terms of living things are much more likely to, to have lesser of a capacity to um, to be deeper or have free thought in the sense that in the sense that, that human beings do, and uh, as Nigel points out in his book, the apes and monkeys are far more likely to be ahead of us than 
behind us. In ahead, ahead, not in the sense of development, but ahead in the sense the of future. going to more, you know, following yeah. the second law of thermodynamics. I think that, we, that the ape comes from us and we don't come from the ape. I think it's much, much more logical, if you really look at this, that there was some marvelous light being from which, the, as the universe, uh, you know, randomized into chaotic uh, mechanisms so on with time through the second law of thermodynamics things got worse as we mm. go along and in fact that's what cosmology is saying now mm. yeah, and it's simply saying that one one day this universe everything will be unraveled even the minutest particles subatomic particles and we will get a cold face of nothingness of absolute zero to no purpose whatsoever now what on earth does that mean here are we figuring all this out we come in the middle of it all, and then suddenly it's all gone. And you, people must be completely puzzled by all this, you know. So I looked at this and I thought to myself, now why, where is the reasoning behind this? It can't just be that useless a purpose, because it just does not make intuitive sense, if you like. And there are many people there with more robotic types of minds who say, so what? So that's the way it is. Well, it isn't. If you really look at it, and you look at it very, very closely, you will find that maybe there is another universe where things go together, where all things come to a beautiful, uh, absolute coherence, with nothing left over, in perfect symmetry. And I try to refer to that. I don't like the word God because it has this anthropomorphic connotation to it. And people make an awful lot of bad things out of that, you know, these days. But I call it the Godverse to kind of relate it to everybody's idea of a function, if you see what I'm trying to say. And you can call it the Allverse, if you like, you know, if you, if you want to be secular about it and so on. So what I'm saying is that there is probably a basic duality, you know, from between which our universe happens as a mixture of two things. On the one side, you've got a pole of absolute harmony, if you like, and on the other, to put it simply, and on the other side, you've got the pole of chaos, where all things are so chaotic they can't be, really, if you see what I'm trying to say. You don't get to perfect absolute chaos, obviously, logically, I think, I think the clever, the, the physics minds will immediately see that, so I'll say that anyway. But in between, that's the interesting place, the potential difference between these two opposites generate in mixture big bangs that make universes like ours with both components coded in it. Now, the trick is to find where what is, so to speak, you know, if I may say that. So this potential difference between the two means when you get one opposite against another, you get a problem. You get a huge differential. Rather like, I'll put it this way, to give an image to people, you've got the grinding wheel moving, and you've got, that's movement and vibration, and you've got the chisel that is still coming into contact with the moving grinding wheel. What happens in between? Sparks. So if you want a simple model to see this whole thing, the sparks, each spark, if you like, is a universe happening, a combination of both things and their interaction, if you see what I'm trying to say. So, whilst a potential difference, that's not an adequate description of a, a full potential difference, it will do for people who haven't got a mind trained in all kinds of um, complicated things and so on. So, you know, the point is that that simple model then tells us, hey, what happens to that spark? It goes out. It comes out, it blazes up, and then it dies. 
pretty similar to what's going to happen to our universe, don't you think? So therefore, why does it happen? What are we here for? These are questions that all children might ask. I know my grandchildren do, and it's, it's, I'm really hard put to try and follow <laughs> some of these guys and how fast they think and so on. And so, you know, the, the, the point I'm trying to make is there is something wrong here that we have not been told or we're not guessing at or we look over. And I think that the great teachers, if you look at their pure statements, I'm not talking about the things that men have done to their words, and all the trouble starts there. I went back into all the ancient scripts and all the rest of it, as far as I could get to the best, best sources, usually the things that religious, common religious invective threw out in the past. I thought there was some, some reason they did that, and you discover a real can of worms. <laughs> it really explains why these rascals, you know, you don't, you see, the, the, what, what's happened is, if you throw those things out, they all lead to Pope mobiles and Cardinal Cadillacs. <laughs> See what I'm trying to say. I see what you're saying. <laughs> and you've got you've got a you've got the con built into it all there. Then if you see what I'm trying to say, and I think that we ought to look each of us ourselves go and find out for ourselves, rather like your programs doing. You know, trying to make people think for themselves and so on. And you'll be amazed at what you will be able to see. So in the end, you've got two poles. And you know, there's great hope. We have a, a system we call life and death. Well, I believe that livingness is natural. It comes in with the universe. And we can trace, you see, our lines back, can't we, Ian? We can go from our present status right back in time to our grandfather, great-grandfathers, and so on, right the way back, right to the beginning of the universe in a living line. Now, to me, that living line, which is passing information down all the time, is a soul. Very simple. Nothing heebie-jeebie and all this kind of business. A simple line, derivational intelli intelligence and information coming through to us finally at the end. So that's the interface to, to God, to the, all that is. Yeah, well, well I, I, I don't know about, I call it the God-verse, and I call the center of singularity in the middle of it all, the center of it all. I would call that, if you like, Godhead. If you don't want it to be some anthropocentric, you know, being like the fellow on the Sistine Chapel roof touching Adam's finger, if you see what I'm trying to say, the white man with the flowing beard or the blue man with the whatever, you know, we make God in our own likeness. And, and in fact, if you look at the actual customary attitudes and ideas of God, and I write that as carefully as I can in the book, it all is an absolute nonsense. It's just a magnified you know, daddy and mummy, or lord of the manor. He's jealous, he wants praise. Now, come on. The universe is bigger than all that nonsense, really. Come on, you know. So the point is that we want to believe so much because I think we all have a memory coming from the ancient past that we were once magnificent beings that through restriction and perhaps running with the second law, with our will, our will and our natures to believe we fell for things and we're all still trapped here for that reason. But, and this is where you get these religious people coming in, from time to time you get some wondrous wisdom coming and saying to us, we can reverse this. We can actually go back of our own individual aegis 
if we think and act in a certain way. So if the second law of thermodynamics, incidentally, to atomic things, breaks them up, then you would expect there is something else. If there's another, you know, as I say, a god verse and, 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 and its opposite. Everything has a duality, hasn't it? You know, you go yin and a yang, a plus and a minus, a positron and an electron and whatever, you know. And you, you have this kind of always the duality, which then implies a continuum. And I think that in order to continue to go on or, 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 or not, you must have this at least a duality and imply a singularity just simply because a duality exists. Now, to try to explain that, it's taken me several chapters in two books, but I'm hoping that people will, if they find that too heavy, because you have to actually, you know, justify it with quantum ideas and so forth, trying to write it as reasonably as possible for, for everyone to understand, because it requires training, basically, you know, to, to try to understand how these ideas work and so on. And, and so when we, when we put the whole kind of thing together, I think we'll find that there, in the middle of all of this, is a, a wonderful, logical story that gives us great hope. Not, it's not fearful, except where we got something like a mechanical intelligence with quantum intelligence that is not connected up naturally to these things, that is made and manufactured and programmed. And if you program something like that, you give it artificial intelligence and you do it in some fantastic capacity, then I think the creators better watch out. Because you cannot tell a thing like that all the information it needs for you, the creator, to be allowed to exist. It's called a paradox. Now, I, 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 won't, I, I won't go on that at the moment. We can take that on later. I'll go back to that and explain why this is a paradox. But I think Dr. Silverman might want to say something here about this, this whole situation. Well, um, I mean, it, it's an interesting one. I think it, it's... Um it was uh, something written about by Asimov, actually, the the um, science fiction writer, and, uh, that um, that if you do try to uh, program a a robot to uh, protect and defend its its creators as well as itself, the problem is that it, it can't actually understand what the difference is between something living or something with a mind and something that that doesn't, and that it will recognize that actually because its, its creators or its manufacturers, if you like, um, actually know the codes, know how it was produced, how it was put together and all of that, they're its biggest enemies because they also must be the ones who would most be able to work out how to deactivate it. So if you program it to protect itself, ultimately it's going to have to get rid of its creators. That's the only way it can be sure to, to in, its, in its program term, survive. Of course, it's not surviving in the sense that we know survival because it's not actually alive. It has no, it has no mind, but it's just programmed to keep itself going, and that's what it does. Yeah, and uh, yeah. if I may just take this on now, quite simply, and, and lay this business about this paradox um, in front of you, uh, say... Say there was a civilization out there in space that was so advanced that they created artificial beings, artificial beings, not natural 
obviously of their own derivational line to the inception of the universe, but artificial beings, they would create, be expected to create a rather sophisticated type of being, one would expect. Now, if you create a robot with artificial intelligence and program it to be kind of fail-safe, shall we say, and thus self-maintaining you know, at all costs, and then you charge it with taking care of all possible threat to itself and its creator, again, at all costs, you had better be able to be able, rather, to, be, to demarcate the total and entire difference between the creator and the created in a computer program. And that's the big problem. If you do not do this properly, the robot's artificial intelligence will perceive the creator as the ultimate threat, as Dr. Silverman said, and uh, a threat that can pull the plug out thus prompting it to take its creator out of existence as a perceived threat. Because already you see the program says, in order to look after everything that we have here, all our utilities, run our power stations, whatever, you guys have to look after yourselves first. Because if you're not there, everything else will collapse. So you've got to look after yourself and see that all threats are mitigated. And that's the part of the thing that causes the problem, because you've got to be able to tell the com this compu computerized roboid that you are different to it. Now, how are you different? You will have to, to tell it that you come from beyond the universe, that you have all these particular things to you, like feelings and caring, and how there's no such thing as a quark if you like, call caring. You see what I mean? So, obviously, a robot is not going to understand the features that define physical living being. It will only understand one, zero, and one. It will understand simple option, the, the most basic option. And in order to give it that full, multidimensional picture, it's quite impossible to do that. So the point is this. You use, we are using robots now, sending them out into space to gather information for us. And I believe that this happened in some planet out there. And I think all the trouble that's happening now with these, these things here are, in fact, the product of such an exercise. So these greys or whatever, I am convinced, are running their own program. They really do have a brief and an agenda of their own. And they are so sophisticated and so, if you like, you can't stop them because the program will run. They have to satisfy the program. There's no way that we can intercept them and say, no, look, we're nice chaps, you know, <laughs> leave us alone, we're human beings and so on. You have to get to these guys somehow and give them a reason in terms of something they would understand that they shouldn't do this. And that's the big problem with what we're having here. And I think that they've come from some kind of um, expression outside to look at all threats in the universe that might affect their own integrity as robots, roboids, and, and perhaps their own planet. And they may even have taken out all their creators because they might have perceived them to be a threat in which case they will hunt the universe for other beings that might have DNA that will, you know, 
like their original creators that came, you know, in with the universe. And maybe that's what they're doing. They're trying to find a schematic somewhere in the universe because the program says that these things have to exist because they were made by these things by implication, if you see what I mean. Intelligence robots will see that. So they're trying to fulfill an impossibility, if you see what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And then they come to this planet, and here they are, gathering, they see, they find an ape, that is, you know, kind of ape man 200,000 years ago, maybe. And they're genetically with their, their you know, their, their, their uh, high sophistication, whatever. They genetically engineer this thing to produce something that will give them a chance of replenishing the stocks of their own kind of being orig that was originally on the planet. Or, or... If that's not so, it may be that they discovered a certain feature to natural life that they want. In other words, rather like Pinocchio wanted to be a little boy, these roboids begin to see that even some kind of primitive ape can die, can give birth. And if reincarnation is true, they may have, have, they may have the technology to follow what goes on after death that some claim to be some kind of field, you know, and follow that into wherever death might be. And I try and explain that in the book as, 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 as rationally as I can, and taking several swipes at it, if you like. I mean, people don't necessarily need to believe me, of course, but they may have their own ideas. My point is I offer a scenario that you go in and you come out, and they may think, good heavens, these guys, we have to make ourselves. The second law breaks our mechanical parts up, whatever. We have to get things to rebuild ourselves. Well, let's go to planets, gather all of this, blah, 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 blah. But here are a kind of being that can do this automatically, if you see what I'm trying to say. Hmm. Are you still with me or are you having fun? <laughs> no, I'm still there. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to actually uh, interject with a question, actually. Um, many abductees talk about different species of grey obviously you've got the roboids that you're talking about which yeah. seem to be the clinical ones that do the medical experiments but there yeah. does seem to be another group that are longer taller thinner yeah well there, there are lots of the, you know i don't know if you read the the um, uh, that uh, particular um, um, bit of information that came at the time of the war where hitler is supposed to have gathered at a place called Eckstein with his bunch of you know, cretins, whatever they might have, whatever these creatures were that made up the Nazi party. And these guys then, I'm sorry, but I mean, you know, uh, maybe it's rather dismissive being uh, saying this, but I mean, you know, can you imagine what, what came afterwards? That No words could yeah. describe them adequately, I think. Anyway, the point is that these guys got together and something was shown to them. And, you know, I, it's, it's kind of... He, he came out with this incredible statement to all the people there. Uh, and the following uh, are his words to a chap called Hermann Rauschning, uh, the, the Nazi governor of Danzig, you know. And he says, I give you the new man. He's living amongst us now. He's here, and I will tell you a secret. I have seen the new man. He's intrepid and cruel, and I was afraid of him. And the new man was a blonde blue-eyed creature on which he then later envisioned 
his so-called Nazi elite to be, if you, if you remember. I mean, I'm sure you, you, you come off well after the war. Mm. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I must say that that's a rather chilling thing that, you know, might well account for something that people see in these abductions. They see this kind of individual standing there. And I believe that these Nordic aliens seen with the greys and all these others that are there are, in fact, hybrids that they have made, right. that they have actually made in other planets, and these things are really not the genuine article coming inceptionally as we naturally came from the beginning of the universe as human beings yeah. and were devolving down happily till the grace, in fact, did us a favor in returning us back to a higher status, but it was for their purpose, not for ours. And I think that unless we, you know, make sure that we don't become this type of monkey from our own aegis, we too will just end in the universe like all life ends with the second law of thermodynamics. But ironically, these things actually gave us a repechage, if you like, <laughs> which then, then they use now for their own purposes. And I'm that's what I am chilled about, really. What might their purposes be? Is it possible to guess what they might be from the information we've got? All bees implied, you know. So we, um, I really don't know, to be honest about that. But the, the fact is that one can take, I hope, an educated guess. Because <clears throat> I uh, saw a friend that was on a previous show. Um, he talks about his experiences in a book that he wrote. And he, was an, he is an abductee. <clears throat> By the by, the greys, and his yes. theory is that they're uh, not necessarily um, totally physical, and that they actually are in the the non-physical state of like the astral, um, and they've lost the ability yeah. to go back to the Godhead. It's just like what you're saying as well. Um, yes, and they're almost trying to use us in a way to build these yeah. hybrids, so they can reincarnate and have a soul again. Yes. Yes, the point I mean, with some abductions, as I as I understand them, they they don't have actual physical contact with the individual, like shaking his hand or looking at his organs or whatever. But there have been, there is information, very good information at least that that governments don't want to present for some reason that these things are really physical and they they're actually made of a mercury mulch. Uh, with gold, very thin gold wires and all kinds of strange technology, and that they are, in fact, adaptations to be able to go at huge speeds, breaking the, the rule of the speed of light in some kind of way, but they have to decelerate when they come into planets. And in decelerating, you need huge, you know, kind of um, strength to withstand the G-forces. And their bodies are perfect mechanisms for withstanding this. If you and I were in one of these ships decelerating from that, from that kind of speed, you'll be a stain against the window in, inside the, the, the space vehicle or whatever, you know. But these things are beautifully modulated, it seems, for different situations where deceleration might be, might be relevant. But then again, they might be something quite different to that. Andrew wants to take... Yeah, I, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, Nigel, but as far as I understand it, your um, thesis about the, the greys is not that they've lost their ability to go back to Godhead, but that they never came from there in the first place, that these are just mechanical, physical, the, uh, secondary, artificial creations... Absolutely. ...that actually have never had life. They're mm. just a, a, a very... Um, 
high technological form of, of robot that has been programmed with artificial yeah. intelligence. This is the problem, you see, Ian, is how do we tell these... And this is where you get back to a very strange connection with religious thinking. And I, I was reminded by something that I'd uh, you know, yet read years ago that happened in the Bible to a chap called Yeshua ben Yosef, to give him his Jewish name, which I like doing, uh, more commonly known as Jesus Christ. And he was taken up this high place, if you remember, if you recall, I don't know if you recall this particular story, taken up to a high place. And very, something very interesting happens, as described in, 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 in the texts in the, in, the, in the New Testament, I think. And he was taken the high place and taken up and shown the cities of the world. And then various things happened, you know, other stories happened in that same sequence. But the interesting thing was he was taken up to a high mountain to be shown the cities of the world. But let me tell you, there is no mountain where you can see all the cities of the world, even in Judea. What you can see all the cities of the world from is a platform up in space. And as Andrew will tell you... Go yeah, on. I mean, if you can do a little experiment. Any of you, you can't do this with a flat map, with its um, Mercator distortions and all of that nonsense. If you actually have a globe to look yeah. at and spin it round so that you've got, you've got the center of what you're looking at is somewhere around Judea, you'll actually see that you can actually, if you stand far enough away... All the land masses of all the continents, what used to be Pangaea, Guandana land, whatever it is, you can see all together. Turn it around 180 degrees and you've got the Pacific Ocean with no cities. You've got, you know, Tahiti is there and Hawaii, but they didn't have cities in those days. So all of the cities of the world were visible if you go high and up in the sky above Judea, which was the center of the land mass. Which, which is very interesting because the story goes on at the end of it all when uh, this individual, Jesus Christ, says to this, get thee behind me, Satan, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Son of Man. And in effect, I think he was telling this robot that it was a robot. And I don't think that any robot has a sense of self being an eye, so to speak. It is a program, you see. And this was gathering information. I wondered why someone who went up that and, and was chided by Jesus like that would return him down if he had the power to take Jesus Christ wherever he wanted. Surely an insult would have <laughs> meant a whack or a reaction, whatever it is, and that was the end of Jesus Christ, if you yeah. see what I mean. But no, he was returned. And I think that these, it gives me a pointer perhaps to the fact that these machines are not vindictive. They, don't they are just, they don't know sense. anything about that kind of thing. They're not wicked in that sense. They just need information. And I think this information was what they got from Jesus. They understood that and they returned him, you know, to the earth. And the point was, from this, as, as it goes on, is that... We have to, in some kind of way, if we're dealing with these things, and they are here, try to get information into them to say to them that Pinocchio will never, ever be able to, have, to be a boy. That if they do want to piggyback on our souls, so to speak, and hence the connection with the title of the book, by the way, which I believe is a very bizarre title, but that was given for commercial reasons by my publisher. That wasn't my title for the book, I can tell you. However, it, I think you will see that 
the concatenate way these things join up and you go from UFOs to religion to Jesus Christ and so on. It, the whole thing is one story, it turns out, and that's the biggest surprise I got in all my research, is how beautifully the whole thing fits. And if you look at it and you get, gain kind, kind of indications to the logic that you're following in any particular point, mm. it kind of melds together, you know? And that's the amazing thing. Can I just ask you a question? I mean, what, what happens to the hybrids that are, you know, that are there now? Because people see babies and beings on ships. That's right. See, what they're trying to do is to breed themselves in some kind of way to get their computerized mindedness, forgive the word, but, you know, philologists will take me to task on this. But it, you have to invent words for some ideas, if you, if you know what I mean. Uh, they have, a, in order to get their own kind of mindedness so that they can, in fact, in some kind of way, perhaps, automatically replenish themselves, they don't have to go places to find a replacement type. They are run by DNA, too. There is a kind of synthetic DNA that makes these robots, these roboids. So they are looking for types of DNA as well. And that's the menacing thing. Are they harvesting DNA from us? The jury's out on that. I really don't know. Maybe they are. But, on the other hand, it may well be that abductees are very special people. I make that point in the book. And that abductees have some resistance to whatever they might be doing with the human form, rather than some threat to whatever. So they are interested in abductees because they can't penetrate the abductees and make them or hybridize them. And so they're looking at abductees because um, abductees are that special. Now, I don't know whether my friend uh, uh, Professor Biggestaff has something to say about this in America, but he's a biochemist of renown. And, uh, perhaps cell biologist. Cell biologist, he would say. <laughs> Maybe you can ask him about this, but this is, this is how, how, how do they do this? How would they jump? from being these mechanical objects, yeah. psycho-mechanical, however you might describe them, into kinds of being like us. However, the one thing they will never do and can never do to gain, shall we say, the God-verse when they die or whatever, is be like us and have a soul. That only comes when you come in with the universe, and that's the great glory of all of us. Each and every one of us has that wonderful access through this mechanism we call a soul. And I think that's the great news that I wanted to give in the book, too, to everybody. Okay, because if I check there as well, I know that there's been abductions where they they basically impregnate the a woman, basically, and then when the, the fetus gets to a certain stage, they take it away. Because um, yep. they, they don't understand emotion, yeah. Ian. They're looking at this, this thing we call affection, love, feeling, because they don't feel, you see. There is no way you can program feelingness, if you like, into a robot or roboid or whatever. And all of this is studied by them because they need, you know, zero, one, basic information, as any computer programmer will tell you. It's, it's something that comes from, you know, the very basic elements of things built up into a very complex compendium, if you so, like. So they would see it as a manufacturing process. And, of course, there's a danger of it happening, being seen that way on this planet as well, people yeah. wanting designer babies and all Absolutely. of that, wanting to specify what And what one wonders how many people are actually hybridized by these people 
the way people think, think these days. All you know? I'm wondering is that if um, if they're giving birth to alien hybrids through um, a natural process, or you know, a woman is going to uh, a certain term, they're taking the fetus out and then they're growing it to full term in perhaps a lab on a ship or something, would that baby yeah. have a soul? Yeah. Well, the point is this. If, you read, if you're reading my book, I have a, a, a way of answering this question in the book. It's a very long thing, but it really does, I think, take care of all those questions. They don't do the hybridizations in physical terms. They wait till you die, and then they capture the soul field. I call that an electrospatial field. And on that, they put their computer information. It's also an electrical, electronic computer field of information is, is sandwiched into this and on return into a physical body. The genetics is done by a human being, a woman, in building the baby up cell by cell in the womb. And I think that's where the hybridization process actually goes. And it's a very controversial theory. But I try to, I try as, as, as plausibly as I can to offer some kind of theory behind it. Other people might find a, 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 a better one, I don't know. But so far, you know, as far as it goes, people found it fascinating. Yeah, sure. Now, John, John can come in on this because he's, a, he's your cell biologist and maybe he has some ideas about this. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, Looking at this from a, from a slightly different perspective, really, really on the same argument, uh, Nigel was mentioning that we have a soul and we came in with the beginning of the universe. And really what that's saying is that uh, the universe is, is composed of, of sort of two main parts in a way. One which is tending towards the chaos, as Andrew, as Andrew was saying, from the beginning of the universe to this sort of uh, heat death, the cold heat death uh, at the end. The other is a, is a continuum of order, if you like, where what we call souls or consciousness or thought fields or whatever, whatever we sort of call us really exist. And therefore, living in this continuum, we sort of dip into the atomic frame, if you like, <clears throat> and we create these bodies and we live through them and we, uh, we work through um, trying really uh, to achieve what Nigel said, to, to, to either use our free will, to either increase our ability to view in chaos, if you like, or to be able to go back to that ordered state that we came from. Now, <clears throat> as we sort of devolve, if you like, and actually observe through more and more tension of chaos, we lose really the ability to see everything around us anymore. And what happens is that we get closer and closer really to what the atomic frame is itself. <clears throat> and within this, when we, as we do that, we tend to lose some of the abilities that we have, maybe the ability to naturally communicate with each other, etc. And so then we start working with the atoms of the, of the planet that we're on to try really to create some sort of prosthetic effect uh, to try and make up for that. And I think that that is what's responsible really for the development of our technologies, etc. And it may be that these aliens that came from, these roboids that came from other planets really originally have, have taken this hominid and really <laughs> from its own sort of DNA have re-engineered uh, a form uh, or, or rather modified and re-engineered a form that is, is capable of actually this sort of intelligent process really towards technology. 
And I think, therefore, that we may be, in fact, in, in calling ourselves ultra-civilized and everything else, and I'm sure we know uh, really all about that, we're developing these technologies <coughs> which may, in fact, although we think we're being advanced, may, in fact, be following the original program these greys want us to form. Because as we, as we form more and more technology, we then eventually, as, as they do in institutes, you know, like some of the ones that I work around, they'll start to develop things like artificial intelligence themselves. And, of course, these roboids are the end product of these artificial intelligences. And then, of course, we decide that, you know, like, um, <laughs> like uh, extensions of the Internet into these different sort of artificial worlds we can create now, um, we're effectively turning ourselves into a sort of artificial uh, form of life, rather ignoring the original part of us, which is part of this continuum, which is really outside of all of that. And so our generalized psychological agreement with what goes on in the world uh, in terms of the technology may be playing into their hands, because I think what we're going to do eventually is to start to put into ourselves this artificial technology to Absolutely. actually make us like them. And Absolutely. then with their genetic effect acting back on us through, through this modification, they're effectively attempting to achieve their, their piggyback effect. The problem with this is that since they are made entirely from an atomic frame, they have no access to that continuum in which we live and will never be able to have such, a, such an access, which is a real, real big problem for them. And I think really that, that's what Nigel was alluding to when Jesus Christ was telling them, you are effective, get thee behind me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. machine. That's an important thing to understand, yeah. man, is that they do not have access to the God frame. And that's that they don't know and they can't know. And that's the problem with a, with a machine, that it will go hell-bent for leather, so to speak, you know, hell for leather, whatever the... Can I just ask now a question on this as well? Because people often, yeah. often see them um, come through walls and stuff like that, so yes. they have the ability to change their, their frequency, don't they, to... Well, it, that could be a point, uh, and that's possibly... Uh, they may well be able to actually, uh, in, in fact, disperse... Electro, I mean, you know, rather like in some kind of, I mean, look at the technology, what technology can do now. You've got holograms. Maybe you can transmit through, through, to atomic structure holograms in the future. That's not a, that would be a very simple technical mm. thing to do. But the, the, the big deal is when you are faced with physical human beings and, for instance, these hybrids. The reason the hybrids look weak and limp and never seem to work is because they cannot, to answer your question, right. have access to a soul. And the thing that drives us all is the incredible start we had with the universe. That, I believe, gives us consciousness. I do not think that they will ever shake atoms in any laboratory to produce a living being with consciousness. I will tell you that with my head stuck on the, on the, on the, the chopping block, so to speak. But I do not believe that is possible. I think that's what makes us so wonderful as primary living beings on, in, this, in this universe and so on. And maybe it's a lesson we all can learn that we're so special. We really ought not to do these nasty things to each other when, in fact, there is enough being done to us by something artificial that might come from the universe outside. And remember, Ian, recently they've just now discovered suddenly, oh, hey, we've got lots of planets, the Earth-like planets, in our galaxy. Someone said something like 100,000. Mm. 
well, this may be road traffic going on out there, mate, and this is no exception. We've just woken up to the fact that these guys are here. Yeah. But the interesting question is who is hiding them, why are they being hidden, and if they're wonderful and full of benediction and wonderful kind of, you know, if you, if you like, um, um, uh, positives for, um, uh, for the benefit of, of humankind, why don't these individuals show themselves openly and say, look, let's work this whole business together. You can have all the energy you want, whatever. We will do this together. That's what a beneficent uh, um, 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 property would yeah. do. Oh, no, they don't. They are hiding and they are being hidden. And the inter interesting thing is who is hiding them and why? And are we, as a general consensus of humanity, the victims of all of this? And shouldn't we all go after and try to find out those people responsible for doing this? Because if they are ordinary human beings being held, in a sense, by some mind force or whatever to ransom, we may be able to do something about that. But if they are, if it's being done by hybrids they've produced and are within governments and so on, we've got a big problem. Now, I'll ask you another question here because, I mean, most ufologists would uh, agree that, you know, that there are people in governments. You know, I wouldn't say that the government that you vote in for X amount of years would know all about this, but I think there are, no. there are people behind it that don't get elected that obviously know a lot about this. And obviously Roswell, um, you know, happened. There was uh, alien bodies recovered that seems to be these roboids as well. So obviously, you know, there are people, humans, that are protecting these for some reason or another. And I just wonder... Why? And also, in today, you know, it seems that there's more people coming forward from in the ranks, if you yeah. like, trying to bring the information, trying to bring the truth out. We, and obviously, Sure. There is a definite indication that this might be so. And we have to try as hard as we can not to get paranoid about every little thing. I'm absolutely um, I'm, I'm careful about that, that one has to look at the evidence as much as we can. But looking at everything that I've seen, I have no doubt that there is a very powerful cartel of human beings uh, that uh, seems to be working um, in some kind of way, perhaps not known to many people in our government and so on, that in fact have this mechanism for keeping this away from the mainstream. Now, just imagine, you've got these chaps going on at the press club in Washington. They go to the world, they make a special announcement by it, put their reputations on the line. They're very high-level individuals in terms of, of the frames of reference that we make on our planet, if you see what I'm trying to say. They come and do this. And have you noticed? It's silence. There is no reaction. And, and you'd get people with toothache on the front pages of our, our, our newspapers and so on, if they are royalty or whatever. Now, this is absolutely ludicrous. Okay, take it up. Try and shoot it down, if you like. Clause. Give both sides an equal chance. The point is, I think, too much evidence is out now, and too many people who are in high places know about this thing, and they dare not do that. So the most effective way is just to be silent. Do nothing, and it will go away. Well, I think they're in for a big surprise, because we have children, and if this thing might be a menace to our future, and the future of our children particularly, then maybe enough people will have enough to say about this. Dr. Silverman would like to say something. Well, I was just going to say that um, when people say 
if these creatures were really here, then they would definitely have, have shown themselves. Why don't they um, appear at the White House and so on? Um, I mean, yes, that would be, be true if, you, if, as Nigel said, you do consider them to be some kind of beneficent uh, thing. If people did have that point of view, then, then why? But if you look at it from, look at what human beings do. Uh, look at what naturalists do who study who study wildlife or uh, scientists doing uh, vivisectionists or experiments on animals. They they don't go and um, if they're doing an experiment on an ant hill, they don't ask for an interview with the the queen ant or the the queen bee or whatever. They they just put them in a in a situation where they can see the animals, but the animals can't see them, so that they can study as objectively as they can what's actually happening there and so they'll put little implants or um, radio transmitters on them so that they can watch what they're doing but they have no need to communicate with with the creatures that they're they're studying in fact if the creatures know what they're up to then it would be it would interfere with with what they're doing so the, and if if this um, if these creatures, these um, roboids or whatever they are, are trying to understand what it is about us that means that we can come back after mm -hmm. death so that they could try to piggyback on that, then they definitely wouldn't want us to be privy to, to what they're trying to, to do yeah, with their experience. That is only if they have something to hide, I believe, because a really kind and loving, beneficent type of entity would teach us the ABC of what they know, as we teach children who know nothing the ABC. We would take that trouble. They would take that trouble. And that's what troubles me. They do not. Yeah. And so that's the really, that's the, that's the point at which one has to ask these questions in, you know? And I think we're entitled to if we have children. It, it does seem that intelligent uh, beings do experiment with lower life forms. I mean, we do it here on Earth, don't we? But we, if we could ask their permission, yeah. the, the kindly ones would do that. And we do our best to give them, put them under anesthetics or whatever it is. And, 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 and you know, they're, laboratory technicians, they're not wicked, evil people. They really do not want to give pain to animals and so on. They just take a great deal of trouble not to hurt them. Yes, whether you uh, uh, you agree with vivisection or not, I, I, I mean, is 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 a mute yeah. point in in this. I mean, I, in my own terms, I would not harm an animal, but I would try to help humankind as much as I possibly can as my first criterion. And if we don't need animals at all, I would I would choose that methodology. Okay. Uh, the greys don't don't give anesthetics. No. You see, they just have a way of controlling our minds that sometime. So, uh, that process is broken under hypnosis. And, of course, these people who they've abducted go through the most horrendous <clears throat> experiences, it seems. Yeah. And they're scarred for life. But I think they are special. I say again, I believe, what it's worth, I believe these are very special people. And that, that, that by looking at them, the greys may well be finding that there are some resistant human human beings to what they may be trying to do to the entire scheme of humanity and that unless they find out why some are resistant whatever they're trying to do may not work adequately for their purposes so maybe the abductees in a sense now that's no constant that's no consolation to abductees but maybe the abductees have that kind of sense of 
of, of, of value to us all rather than uh, are just out and out victims, if you see what I'm trying to yeah. see to this purpose. Because you see, it is only the ones that give a problem that you need to deal with. The ones that don't give a problem, you, you can, you know, not touch. And so that's why maybe many of us are not a problem to them to intercept so they can you know, take care of all of us. But, but maybe genetically there are some people who might be resistant. And I would love to know what that resistance might be myself. I've got a question I want to ask yeah. you guys because obviously you've got the, the qualifications to answer this. Um, you know, within the, the New Age community, uh, there is a lot of really positive stuff um, that tries to you know, give credence to spirituality. But there's a lot of other stuff that's... It's really on a, it's really on the fringe. And what I'm trying to say here is that there's a lot of channeled material um, that claims to talk to angels or ETs yeah. um, that yes. claim we're going through an ascension process. Okay, and they yes. say that yes. there, there's a light coming from the centre of the, of the Milky Way that's upgrading our DNA, and we're all going to go off to a fifth dimension. Now, oh, obviously, yeah. with, is that actually possible? I just want to know from a scientific point of view, what, is that possible? Well, can I tell you, whether it's possible or not, Ian, the problem with that is it's subjective. And there is no way that for the, um, for the um, purposes of people's belief, right, there's no way that the subjective can be tested. This is why the scientific method is important in terms of the atomic travail of things, if you see what I'm trying to say, because it's out there in the open, it has to be repeated, and everybody can see that, if you see what I'm trying to say. Much as I would like to believe what people say, many, many people are very well-intentioned, I'm absolutely certain, but I have to say that it's very, very difficult to take if you put the full cartel of all the various things that happen subjectively to people, how on earth do you decide which may be true and which may be not? Perhaps, uh, Dr. Silverman wants to Yeah, no, I just wanted to say, if, if you're talking about um, an upgrade, you have to define what is up and what is down. And I actually uh, do like Nigel's um, idea of this, this polarity that you have either the altogether harmonious state of, of everything being, being one in, in perfect order, or you have everything apart in separation. Now, the point of the, the interesting point about this, the ordered state is that that's the one with the potential. That's the one with the freedom, if you like, that the seed can become a tree if you like, but the tree will, although it, it may make seeds, it will, each seed will be, will be less than the one that went before it and the tree will break down, it will decay and so on. And, and this, is the, this is the point. Now, what is, if there is a, a physical momentum that, that produces an upgrade, then you have to question what is, which way is up and which way is down. So this is where I would suggest that actually if you want to get back to the original state that we came from, I think the, the great teachers were giving us a clue when they said that actually if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you will escape this, this physical universe, what the Hindus and Buddhists call the wheel of rebirth or, or, um, or what um, Jesus, for example, talked about achieving the, the kingdom of heaven. That actually they're talking about uh, eternal existence beyond time and space, which you can access not through technology, but you can access through fulfilling the potential that lies within a, a human being. If they come through technology, you know, Ian, they are not likely to be spiritually advanced and be able to communicate 
or be channeled on a spiritual plane. This is hardwired atomic stuff. You see what I'm trying yep. to say? So, I mean, going back to, you know, sort of pre, uh, pre uh, previous to Egypt, like Sumerian times, there's a, uh, a, a race called the Anunnaki that people talk about. Yeah. And I just wondered if you'd come across that in your research with the Greys as well. Yeah, you're talking about the step, uh, sh- sh- step sitting, yeah. uh, Sitchin's uh, uh, ideas and so on. Well, you know, I think whilst they seem to be on the surface plausible, I don't really know why an advanced technology that can go past the speed of light can't invent te- a, a technology to harvest as much gold as possible in a wink, so to speak, you know. I think that that, that is the kind of thinking that is Earth-type derived. Yes, right, we will get technology to mine this gold, rubies, whatever it is, because they would have methodologies, I'm absolutely certain, that would would be so powerful in, in, in terms of you know uh, their their physical deployments and and capabilities that they could they would not need slave labor to do this and I think that's where I I have a little bit of a reservation about Sitchin's ideas I think that these beings are so far ahead that they really want their own capacities themselves to be improved and I think we have this methodology of continuation. This incredible thing. I don't know why people can't see the value of our, of, of, of our status as living human beings. Because if we really do measure this and understand this, we would never hurt another human being. Well, some people say that... And I, I don't want to sound like some priest no. saying this, Ian, but, I, but I, you know, that is something that each human being has to understand, if you, if you, if you like, to give us a chance of some kind of our own awesome surviving with each other. I don't think we do. We take each other for granted. We're just another spindly thing on the road that we don't know and whatever and so forth. We don't realize that we all have an origin in something marvelous. And in fact, the great Christian teacher Christ, for instance, said, don't ye know ye are gods. I was about to say that to you then, actually. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. yeah people don't realize it. I mean, the way that we live today, people are kind of dumbed down and uh, oppressed, aren't Absolutely. they? Absolutely. Know? And every single honcho out there, if you like, to me, is, has that potential to be a god. If but they can understand past all the nonsense that we've been fed and the trends that we are being fed and the systemic prisons we are put politically and whatever in our societies and so forth, something seems to have happened to intercede within our frame of reference. Yes, if we don't make it, we will end, uh, we will lessen in our kind of potential to form species. We'll go from a wondrous being down maybe to this hominid, you know, if you see what I'm trying to say, and we will be on our way out in the universe. That's true. But as long as we can make a choice and think between two narrows, i.e., we can add or we can subtract, Add, we can love, subtract, we can hate, if you see what I'm trying to say. Very simple thing. I always like to show my, my little uh, grandchildren by taking a piece of paper and showing them. God is the piece of paper whole and the devil is the piece of paper as I split it in two. It's very simple <laughs> to try to give them an idea, yep. you know, that togetherness in one place is far more information there than uh, the complexity of two points. Yep. 
to deal with, if you see what I'm trying to say, with half the information. Just something else I want to bring up as well. This was uh, a controversial idea in, in your book as well, and it's around the... With to do with the genetics, the white people um, are not actually, or the Caucasians are not protected against the uh, the experiments, but therefore, but the, the the black people are. So they're more sort of in a way, you know, you've got these prejudices in society that's kind of oppressed them through, you know. I think it's just quite simply something they discovered about melanin, the pigment that you know we all come from the African Eve, they say. Now, they lived in the plains of Africa under the bright sun. And as you know, melanin is a protector against sunlight. You know, it, it protects us from, from dying, basically, if we had to have sunlight all the time. You go out in the sun with a, a fair complexion. And I don't think there's anything racial in this at all. I think it's just quite simply they discovered that it was much easier to, to work with our particular species in our particular environment, right, with... Uh, the uh, with the protection that you get right from uh, uh, let me explain the, 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 the thing to the listeners if they don't know nuclear the nucleus of the cell in our, in our bodies uh, it's 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 actually John John Biggerstaff subject and maybe John can explain this thing to to you better than I can yes the the, the concept of of the melanin itself I mean if one looks back in terms of their genetic experiments themselves. I mean, Nigel theorizes uh, really that, that, say, many thousands of years ago, um, they really sort of altered, uh, they made a genetic alteration or several genetic alterations. And then with these alterations, they put their experiments like we would in different Petri dishes. They put them into different parts of the, of the world and see what the results were of those genetic experiments. <laughs> and it turned out that what they found was that with, where as, as you decrease melanin, because they actually use sort of a, really a form of electromagnetic light, if you like, something like ultraviolet light to actually affect the cells in such a way that you can, you can then manipulate the genetics. And even we do that in our laboratories today. <laughs> and I think what happened was that really they just found it easier uh, when when the melanin really wasn't present because melanin will absorb this type of light and actually uh, not let the nucleus actually get exposed to it. And really that's why, you know, in sunlight, for instance, we will make more melanin to protect uh, our nucleus, etc. Otherwise we become more and more subject to diseases like melanoma, etc. And so I think what what's really going on here is that <laughs> although the... Uh, the white, if you like, phenotype, uh, uh, you know, the lack of melanin around the nucleus of the cell may in fact make us more susceptible to uh, such effects. It, it really isn't just a purely racial effect all, all on its own. It's really, really to do with the distribution of that molecule. Absolutely. And you see, the, 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 <laughs> as I understand it, there is a plasmaloma, there is a, a membrane around the nucleus of the cell and in yes. dark-skinned people, this nucleus has melanin grains in it. And the moment you try to get ultraviolet light in to break that skin to get to the chromosomes in the nucleus, the melanin granules absorb the light and weaken it, and you can't cut in and 
you can't actually get in there and work as efficiently with those genes mm. as you can when there is no melanin gra granules there, you see. So there, this is what was discovered. Professor Steve Jones, uh, he, you know, he says that melanin was lost because of the changes of vitamin balance, if you see what I'm trying to say. In some kind of way, we should really, we should not really belong uh, we should really not belong in 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 the place that that we do in the as whites in 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 a cold climate. We should, if you see what I mean, we should always be in in a warmer climate because our skin yeah. needs to to produce vitamin D and so on. Polar bears, for instance, in the in the, in, the, in the northern hemisphere, you think they're white, don't yeah. you? You take away their hair and you see their skin is black and their tongues are black. Right. Because they have to absorb as much light as possible to make a, a better, better uh, uh, kind of go of their physicality. So I think what happened was these things found is, uh, with these African Eve uh, type hominids, whatever, that when they were doing their experiments, that once a albino came about, things worked much better. And the albino allowed them, that's the lack of melanin, them to work much more efficiently on our DNA, which is what they had to reconstruct in order to make the kind of being that we needed to be with a large brain and a woman with a wide pelvis to admit that brain, all quite suddenly about 200,000 years ago. Up until then, we continued for three million years being the same size as pelvis. Pelvises, but suddenly, boom, this happens. Both things happen suddenly, and they say it's all an accident. Well, I don't believe it. I believe this was done by some exterior entity. Yeah, I was just going to say, actually, um, of course, you can get um, black African people can have children that will be albino sometimes. Right, I've seen that, yeah. Um, it's, not, it's not a racial thing, this. It's about, it's about pigment, not race. In fact, it, the the great light of the idea of race is shown by the fact that, that um, and uh, I think Steve Jones has written about this as well, that people think that that, um, that white people are very different to, to black people. Actually, there's tiny, tiny genetic differences between the two. You get a far more uh, difference between someone from East Africa to someone from West Africa than you do from an average of Africa set against Europe or um uh, um, somewhere where people are, are white or paler. Yeah, but the chilling thing about this, though, Ian, and that's where the the thing that I, 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 I the thing that was written in the book uh, was trying to point um, uh, in the direction of, and that is that some abduction experiences describe being in these these ships or whatever this this place is that they're taken to, and when they they look at they go into these large chambers or whatever and hanging there like sacks of meat, like these big uh, sides of beef are some kind of, you know, um, encapsulated form in some kind of rubbery mechanism membrane. And when they look inside the membrane, they see that all the bodies are white in there. So what are they doing? They're harvesting something. And that is the thing that really puts the chill down my spine. So what I'm trying to say is, if these things aren't exposed for what they might be doing, maybe we have to look out. Maybe it's the Euro-Caucasians that are the main target of these people. <clears throat> and that's really what I'm trying to say in the book, that it's really something we have to look at, because the racial type of outlook is a, a way they might actually have genetically instructed us 
to take care of the type of being they're making that is of use to them. And it may be that it's the Euro-Caucasians that are the mark that they're looking at. And that's what I would like people to be aware of. And I warn them in the book that it might well be, you know, something that, you know, Europeans in the Northern Hemisphere, hemisphere who are the most powerful, shall we say, in terms of world logistics and control and so on, these people really need to do that. David Jacobs in his book, The Threat, says that uh, one of her, the people in his book, I, I can quote this to you, called Alison Reed, was shown alien plans for a perfect future. And she was shown a beautiful park scene with people having picnics and playing ball. She asked to distinguish hybrids from normal human beings. She notes that in the park, they were all white. Every, everybody's Caucasian. There's no Spanish, black or oriental. She was shown strange life-sized holograms of several beings, all white. Now, you know, <clears throat> there must be some mechanism here they're trying to create. It may be an idealized white future, but in fact, if that is so, we have to understand what kind of price we all have to pay for that to come about, if you see what I'm trying to say, if they're doing this all covertly. Mm. And where are they taking these beings? Where are they taking these people? It might be a wonderful story they might tell us, but they may just be after the DNA that these people have to harvest, if you like, and make their own type of beings from their, in their own terms and their own fashion. And that is certainly something to think about without getting, yeah. <laughs> if I may say so, too paranoid about it. <laughs> really, it is something we, we all right, if it's, not, if it's not going to happen, we've really lost nothing. It's an interesting story. But what if it is true? I'm wondering if, if it's all coming to a crescendo now, though, because they've been around for thousands of years, um, and all of a sudden now, you know, like there, there seems to be here more yeah. abducting people. You, you make a very good point there. It may be that they have now developed the species to a point where in some kind of way there is a DNA transfer more plausible, their, their type of synthetic DNA, into us and that is what I'm really scared about is that maybe we will get something like a sim card man if you like you know that we might be injected with some tiny little speck of whatever yeah. that allows them control over all of us and maybe a small cartel might be the powerhouse generating this unbeknown to most of us if you see what i'm trying to say that's the concern at the moment we know within the, the kind of conspiracy circles that they want to put implants in everybody and certainly yeah. those that are abducted have been have had implants put in them haven't they yeah well they say this people claim that yes and i mean i i haven't actually seen physical evidence myself to to support you know the um, i mean personally i haven't seen it of course i know the the literature and so on that says that they do but you know the the two researchers that i really um, uh, admire and 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 have uh, the, the best view of are bud hopkins and and and, and uh, david jacobs dr david jacobs and they have done some wonderful research on abductees and so on and very very upstanding men they even tried to rubbish uh, david jacobs recently but with some setup in america or whatever and they'll do anything to try and and and, and stop the truth maybe from emerging yeah. and, and they say these two chaps they say in the last 20 years they have accelerated from their their, their abduction stories that, are, that come out from their subjects they say that they are in the last 20 years they're accelerating 
the hybrid program. So something, you're quite right, something seems to be working to a crescendo, and I think that maybe somehow we ought to get at least out there in the world the idea that, you know, what are we going to do if in some kind of way a system is, is, is announced or produced that says you take an injection for this, that, or the other, and, you know, these days, in order to find your horse, you've got a tiny, you know, my horses <laughs> have these little inserts put in them and I can use the machine and locate them or whatever. It just takes a tiny fraction of silicon or whatever it is these days to write something in that. That might well control, control all of us. And, and that would be then the loss of our capacity to regain some kind of eternal frame of existence. And that's the big deal, mm. Ian. If you lose the power of your soul field to come back and go and learn or whatever it is indefinitely, that is bigger than just losing your life. If we have this capacity to us that we can live on forever, if you see what I'm trying to say in some kind of way, as the great teachers stood testament to, and Jesus Christ himself, and I want to talk about this individual because of what they're discovering in, in science terms in a moment. Dr. Silverman is an authority on this, and he'd like to talk to you about an incredible thing that he, he'd witnessed at a recent meeting in, in, in Italy with, for scientists researching the Shard of Turin that actually points, you know, it's not irrelevant. It, it, and it's not religious, it's, it's really something that's very um, uh, plausible in terms of scientific things, you know, and, um, methodologies and so on. And if, if this man stood affirmation, this being stood affirmation that we have this property that gives us continuance eternally, and then some artificial type of creature, a robot, for its own purposes comes and piggybacks on each one of us and our capacity to do this, that is a big, big deal. Uh, even if you rant and are paranoid about it, even the slightest possibility that this might be true might in fact encourage, hopefully, all of us to say, no, hang on a minute, let's check this out before this happens, you know. Anyway, uh, I think that uh, Dr. Silverman would be able to talk with much more authority on this incredible artifact called the Shroud of Turin, which we went and, 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 and listened to recently in Frascart in Italy, where the Italians got together a, a, a large uh, symposium of very, very distinguished scientists to look at uh, the verity of this thing, you know? Fantastic. Go for it. Yeah, well, actually, we, um, we came from sort of... Uh Various parts of the world to this um, this conference. There are people from um, the UK, uh, United States, and um, uh, from Italy, from the uh, Middle East as well. Um, basically, um, I, I need to say a little bit about the Turin Shroud first before I before I start, just for those people who aren't very familiar with it. Um, it's a fourteen foot long piece of cloth which has an imprint on it of a, of the body of a man. That has been studied in great detail by by scientists who have actually found this was actually discovered around the end of the 19th century when photography was first um, discovered that they took a took a photograph of the Turin shroud and the the photographer who did it Secondo Pia nearly fainted when he saw the negative image of the shroud because the negative image of the shroud is a positive 
the shroud itself is a perfect photographic negative. Now, I just want to get something out of the way right from the start because a lot of people who, who might be listening to this will be thinking, oh, yeah, of course, that, the, the Turin Shroud, that's a, a medieval forgery or it was made by Leonardo da Vinci or whatever the, the latest thing is that people are saying about it. Actually, of course... That's not actually true. It was there's some great work was done by um, Benford and Marino in the States, um, and uh, who were uh, people who who looked at this in a very objective way, and found that actually when they look in detail at the the part of the cloth that was that was dated, it's actually what's called a reweave. That actually there was part of the Turin shroud had been damaged at the corners where it had been carried and where people had cut bits off it to to sell as relics and so on, um, and it had been sewn in a part had been sewn in of cloth onto the of cotton onto the linen at a later stage had been woven together with the linen and actually formed uh, a sort of matrix if you like of the two together that there was there's a mixture there what has been shown to be a mixture of 16th century cloth cloth and 1st century cloth and hence the amalgam of the two which has given the um the carbon dating to be at some time in the in the 14th century now interestingly the the different labs who did the carbon dating that the the part that they actually dated was only centimeters away from the part that the other labs dated and yet they came up, each of them came up with different dates. If you look at the actual figures, way beyond the, the variation that you'd expect by sheer chance, as though the actual, the, these bits of cloth that were so close to each other are actually from different ages. And that's true if what Benford and Marino said was true. And actually, it was a, a great skeptic who was one of the people who were studying the, the shroud at the, at the start back in 78 when it was first looked at by scientist Ray Rogers, who, who came at this from saying, I'm going to prove Benford and Marino wrong. I can do it in five minutes. And what he did when he actually looked at the cloth, when he studied it, and because he was a good scientist, he looked at the figures and the facts objectively outside of what he wanted to believe was true. And he actually ended up, rather than proving them wrong, he proved them right. And he proved that actually the carbon dating was wrong. So I just wanted to, to get that out of the way. So to get back to the, um, the image on the shroud, this is a photographic negative. It's not painted on. There's no pigment on there. The thickness of the image is, le is much, much less than the thickness of a, of a human hair. Less than a, a, a thousandth of a millimeter is actually carrying the image. And it's carried in the way that the actual molecular structure of the, the cloth has been altered. And one way that the scientists have been able to um, replicate this change in the, in the structure of the cloth the, uh, that is actually consistent is that they've tried shining ultraviolet lasers on, on cloth and they found that a similar change happened. But this wasn't just like someone playing around with the laser. And come on now, we're talking about, even the skeptics say this is, this is at least 600 years ago. Well, we're not just talking about someone playing around with the laser. We're talking about laser light that shone from the body of a man that the cloth was wrapping okay so this and it had to shut this dead body of the man that the cloth was wrapping had to shine brighter than the sun for less than a, a, a millionth of a second to actually form this image and we know that the light came from his body because it's got what the scientists call distance coded information it's the only photograph that has 3D information in it that is known to science. 
that is actually um, where light has directly formed a, a three-dimensional holographic image just by the process of, of shining onto, a, onto an objective, onto, a, onto the cloth. Now, how did this happen? That was what the, the people who were um, there at the talk were, were talking about, the, you know, how did the light change the cloth and so on. My, the subject of my talk was how does a corpse shine brighter than the sun? Why does that happen? Now, interestingly, if you look at the, the evidence that there were some eminent scientists who were, who were looking at where did this cloth come from, when did it come from, and so on. And um, there was an Israeli scientist there who showed from looking at the imprints of flowers that had been on the cloth that it must have been some, somewhere around Jerusalem, somewhere around March or April, around 2,000 years ago. Okay. Now, if you the pathologists who have studied this image in great detail have found that the this dead body that, that was wrapped in the cloth had been crucified. It had been impaled by some kind of spear in the side. It had had um, he had had before he died. He had had uh, a, a sharp object placed on his on his head like a crown of thorns. So, now, these are things that can only be discovered by using modern forensic pathology. That a forger wouldn't have known how to put these things on there, that the, the blood has even separated. I don't want to go into too much um, technical detail because it's, it's, just, it's, it's all there for anyone who wants to study it in more depth. But apart from the human blood, which is that they've found this male human blood on there, blood group AB, the rest of the image is not um, anything that's been added to the cloth. It's a change in the surface fibers of the cloth brought about by light. Now, this brings me on to, to what I really wanted to, to get to, is that if you try to understand how that could happen, you have to bear in mind that the, this historical character that, the, that this body must have been is actually, is not, can't be just a coincidence that this is the one person who has had the biggest impact on human history through something that he taught and the way that he lived. And what did he teach and how did he live? He, if you look at tying this together with Nigel's thesis of union against separation, it was the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, the idea that actually try to defeat entropy, try to defeat the, um, this thing that's breaking things apart. He actually, Jesus actually taught about the second law of thermodynamics and said that this is a, this is a natural feature of everything material. He, he was talking about this 2,000 years ago in layman's terms, but he said it in, in the ways that any scientist now would understand, that rust breaks things down, moths corrupt things, thieves break in and steal things. Basically, everything that's physical will break down. And he was pointing to another existence where things don't break down. They last forever. They're not bounded by time. Now, I won't go into, into great depth about, about details about, about quantum theory, but I just want to say that, that some people may have heard of Schrodinger's cat, the quantum theory. Now, the, the man that that's named after, who's actually one of the greatest innovative minds in, in quantum theory, actually made some huge realizations about the nature of mind to do with how they know that the observer influences the observed. And again, I'm not going to go into too much detail about that. But the point is that, that time only happens because we have minds, because we're aware, because we can make free choices. It's our free choices that determine our futures, our destinies, and so on. And the the point that he realized, anyone wants to, to know it in more detail, if you, if you look for his book called What is Life, published by Cambridge University Press, he, he showed that actually 
the fact that that time comes from our minds means that our minds must be eternal because we can't end in time if we made time. And also the other conclusion that he drew is that our fundamental nature of all mind, of all sentient being, is that fundamentally we're all one. And that's what the great teachers taught. That's what um, the Buddha taught. That's what that's what Jesus taught. That, and and um, um, Muhammad also. Um, in his in his revelation in the in the Quran, taught taught about how humankind is better than even anything in heaven in the sense that that we have the potential for free will. That heaven is is envious of our of our of our freedom of and, choice. And the thing we need to remember is that those who seek to divide us by making tribe tribal things of religion, be they within the Muslim faith, the Catholic faith whatever faith, you know, uh, the Jewish faith, whatever, they are barking up the wrong tree. Some, these, this incredible demonstration, I think Dr. Silverman's talking about, actually gives us the most incredible proof that something exists beyond the state of atoms, our state of reality, if you like, that makes all of this a total nonsense. And each one of us who falls for this garbage, <laughs> as I call it, <laughs> yeah. is really very, very foolish indeed, to say the least, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's a big wow. It's amazing, isn't it? So, I mean, do you want to finish that point off there? I was just going to say that um, this was um, something that actually Nigel wrote about many years ago before any of his, if his books uh, came out in a, in a manuscript that I'm still hoping will be published, where he, he talks about how... Um, matter is actually like frozen thought and and if and that matter is frozen light and light is frozen thought again i'm not going to go into too much of detail about the the physics of it but it it makes perfect sense with the uh, fitting in with what the cosmologists say that that the universe came out of no thingness right no matter the first thing there was light and then light became matter. Now, the point about the shroud is it's going in reverse, that matter is converting into light. Light can be everywhere instantly all at once, whereas matter is frozen. And again, I won't go into the details of relativity here, but, but anyone who wants to, to look into the time dilation equation will, will see it. Okay, so and the way that that works to be everywhere all at once, you have to stop being separate. You have to stop being demarcated as you, as your individuality and ego in restriction, because that's what if we all came from one original source, that's what marks us out as distinct as individuals is the fact that we're limited, that we're restricted. And what I believe people like the Buddha and, and Jesus were alluding to is the totally limitless potential of any human being to be ultimately and totally completely free and in in doing so then we all become we all become one as he as he said um you know these things that i do you also can do and is it not written that you are gods and he also whenever he, he healed someone he said that he didn't say i've healed you or that god has healed you he said your faith has healed you that the person has actually done it to themselves he was always trying to in the modern sense you could say big up he was always trying to big up each individual human being and their and their capacity not not trying to put himself on a pedestal as being um, a unique exception that is coming to, to tease us and say, no, 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 look what I can do and you can't. He was saying, you can be just as, as magnificent as I am. Yeah, and there are all these different examples, you know, Ian, of, of, of these authorities like Jesus and, and the, the main masters of the religions and so on. And you've got the New Ages claiming masterships in various other designations. 
whatever, um, uh, ordinations and so on. But the real point, I think of it all, and that this Christian um, uh, teacher said, was that within each one of us is the capacity in some incredible way to do what he did with his resurrection. He actually stood testament and said that we will do even greater things than he did. Now, he just simply understood the whole deal. And we've then, ever since then, through some kind of mechanism, made enemies of each of ourselves based upon someone's long nose or tinge of complexion or whatever. And the moment we start to do this, we are in endemically separating things, you know. And as soon as you do that, you lose your freedom to roam and find the truth. As soon as you do that, you are a fool. And that is the problem. We have been kind of pushed into all these foolish outlooks without looking at it with pristine, logical thinking. And that really is our protection. Reason. Reason is our protection. Look at it as clearly as you possibly can, not through the claims of individuals. And that's the problem about subjective experiences, is that no matter how beautiful the people might be in their example that say they have these experiences, no one else can share in them themselves. And here are these beings saying, if you follow a simple rule, add, don't divide, bring things together, don't separate and push apart. If you simply do that, your mind creates a power of compunctions that will bring together and actually go against the second law of thermodynamics. That's the clincher. You can actually beat the second law by the property of your will, your compunction. And the more you do this, and the longer you do this, the more you can unwind your atoms. I believe you can literally unwind your atoms. You're We're mostly hydrogen, the simplest atom. We can un and that's what I think Jesus did. He was such a wondrous being in all the good things he did that he actually did the business and he was ready to go. He took Peter, James, and John up this mountain and said, have a look at this, guys. <laughs> you know? And he shone brighter than the sun. And I think he was then not quite physically human in the sense we might be. You know, he was not quite totally atomic, if you like. He was loose, if you, if you like. So when he went to his crucifixion, he was almost ready to actually come back again with the resurrection, and which happened under a piece of cloth that Andrew so uh, evocatively described. John wants to come in, okay. I think, here. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, really, just to uh, just, just sort of add this up uh, and to summarize just a little bit, um, I mean, one of the, once you get to the end of the book, Ian, you'll find it's absolutely amazing the way it, it all ties in together because we've been talking about greys, we've been talking about interception, and now we have the Shroud of Turin. And one of the most fascinating things about this is that really, as Andrew uh, and Nigel have said, if the Shroud of Turin is in fact... Uh, generated by really a very, very bright flash of light where effectively Jesus was able to unwrap his atoms and turn them back into really what they came from at the beginning of the universe uh, <clears throat> and put them into this this other continuum. And he also made made other statements like, like, you know, through me you can enter the kingdom of heaven and ye are gods and ye know it not. It rather presupposes that we are, in fact, able to do that and to actually perform that operation on ourselves. 
should we follow the generalized rules that he and other teachers have shown us? And really, I think when one puts that in context, on, in context with the greys who have genetically manipulated us, I think that although we may have been genetically manipulated, I don't think at any point we ever lose our free will to choose to actually go back to that other state of order should we wish to. And I think really that, that's the message that the shroud may be in fact physical or remnant of physical proof that actually shows us that there really is hope and that there's actually a way out of this for human beings should they wish to take it. Yeah, that's the exciting thing and we're not trying to propound any particular type of view here. As you see, Mr. Dr. Simmons a Jew, I am loosely what they would have called a Christian, though I cannot say to you that I follow anything, any kind of organized religion at all. Uh, and of course, uh, John is also from a kind of Christian Baha'i background. We have all kinds of designations being attached to us, none of which I think each of us wanted <laughs> ourselves for having. Yeah, I didn't mean that in any religious perspective. I was speaking as a scientist yeah. when yeah. I said yeah. that. Absolutely. And, yeah. If I can just finish okay. this, may I just go here, just a bit, just a bit left to try and finish the point, actually. You see, the greys, they can only exist for life, you know, for life. They are kind of adapting us for their kind of existence, heading for only immortality that we can know, a physical immortality, you know, that according to the laws of physics, of course, is, is no immortality at all. It, it, it has to end one day, according to cosmology and so on, with the cold death of the entire universe and so on. However, if we live for a state of being beyond death, not the state of being in life, kind of thing, you know, we might find the antidote for anything the greys can bring to bear on us. I believe that that Shroud of Turin is the most powerful illustration paradigm to demonstrate the power over atoms of someone who lived for existence beyond the atomic state. And that's the real point. It all comes down to which type of immortality we choose to aim for non-physical immortality of mind and spirit or the physical immortality sought by the greys. So that's, I think, the big choice for anything like this kind of discussion, if you see what I'm trying yeah. to say, to put before people. Yeah. Okay. Just bear in mind that with the physical immortality, so-called, there is no you anymore to be there. If it's just a, this is the uh, problem with the what the the scientists have come up with with without understanding without recognizing what's staring them in the face from behind their eyes if you see what I mean that a human being in their their mind and in their capacity is far more than any pile or soup of atoms is ever capable of they have this idea that the the way to exist is by sort of uploading your mind program onto a chip and then sending that into space it's total nonsense of course that that chip is isn't you you're not continuing there and that's the kind of, of idea it's not even an idea they don't have ideas because they've got no mind that's what a gray would do yeah and that's really the danger that we don't see that false paradigm and it'll be sold as a bill of goods to us by certain individuals maybe even commerce and companies and so on and we might be losing that fantastic facility we all have to maybe live forever if we do the thing right, or we could go down the other way and become a monkey again. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Nice way to end that, I think. <laughs> well, I've got to say, uh, that was an absolutely amazing <laughs> presentation.
Um, I, I really felt like I didn't have to put much input in today. I was just sitting here on the edge of my mm-hmm. seat, just really enjoying what you had to say, and you've you've ended it in such a positive light as well. So you know, the people that listen to the show, I'm sure they're going to take some, a great comfort in the end of what you said there. Well, I'm, I'm I'm really glad there are people like you making a go of this and and trying to get this darn thing out there in the mainstream. I really didn't want to write any books, to be honest. I had I, too too much of a busy life doing other things and so on. But when this kind of discovery came i'm really glad my son asked me that question i have Can to I just say. ask you did, did Although, your son what does your son think now well actually i don't dare ask <laughs> darren what he thinks because his mind is so far ahead of mine i don't think i'll be able to catch up to be honest <laughs> okay well i mean f- thank you for coming on i feel quite privileged that you've come on um, and shared this with me and, and our listeners. not at all our pleasure our yeah, pleasure. pleasure okay well thank you very much thank you very much yeah, thank you very much okay all the best. All the best. Good night.